If you'd open your Bible, I'd, I think it'll be worth your while to follow along, keep your Bible open, for it is the Word of God, and to follow along as we trek through uh, the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation chapter 21. Follow along as we read together. We looked last week at verses 1 through 4, our focus this week, verses 5 through 8, but I'll read the entirety of the passage. Revelation 21, verse 1, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, inspired by you, by your spirit, as it communicates to us the glories of Christ. This morning we pray the presence of your spirit to help us to understand your spirit-inspired word. We plead for eyes to see and ears to hear what our king says to us from his throne regarding the new heaven and the new earth. We pray a powerful work of your spirit upon each and every heart here today that we would not be cavalier with these truths. We pray that we would not be those who hold these things up in esteem with no real practical bringing them to bear upon our hearts. For captured within this text is both wonderful blessing but a sobering warning. And Father, we are not wise in and of ourselves. We are not wise to discern for ourselves even the reality of our own hearts. We need your help. We need your spirit. Come, take your word. Open our eyes. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to see ourselves rightly in light of it and help us whatever our need to pursue Christ to cling to Christ to run to Christ to hold fast to Christ 
for he is the answer to every question. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We've pleaded for your presence with us. And now we pray you would answer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, last Lord's Day, we began considering this Revelation chapter 21 passage, the new heaven and the new earth. And what a glorious passage it is. And it's glorious not for the reason that most people, when they think about heaven, think heaven is glorious. Uh, For many people, heaven is glorious because of, well, some of the things we read, like in verse 4, there will be no more tears and Uh, Death shall be no more, no more crying, no more pain. For a lot of people, heaven is is, is an escape. Finally, all the sufferings of this world is an escape. And as wonderful as that is, that is not what is glorious about heaven. If that's what we're most looking for about heaven, then we're really no different from the unbeliever. Because even the unbeliever wants a world that's free from pain and death and suffering. That's, That's across the board. Everybody wants that. What makes heaven heaven and what makes heaven glorious is the person of Christ who is there. This picture of the new heaven and new earth is glorious because it's showing us the fulfillment from everything we've seen in chapters 19 and 20 with God purging creation of of, of, uh, uh, Satan and his evil influences and even of, of mankind that does not love Jesus supremely. All that's left is Christ and those who love him. That's all that's left here. And what's glorious is God has fulfilled his promise. What he said would happen has occurred. It has happened. And for those who by grace have survived that purging in chapter 20, the final reward of heaven is Christ. It's him. Heaven is not the reward. Christ is the reward. And if Christ is not in heaven, we don't want heaven. We just want Christ wherever he is. And the question this morning is, we asked it last week, can we honestly say we want Christ that much? Or for many of us, is it, well, no. I mean, for a lot of people, the benefit is all these other things. And oh, yeah, yeah, Christ is there. That's great. That's not the same. Christ will not be a U-Haul in heaven attached to the back of the car. That's the nice benefit. Christ is the benefit. He's all. And this is the beauty and the glory of the new heaven and new earth, Christ. And I've I've gone back and looked at last week's text, even as I've been studying this week's text, and, and, and my goodness, I mean, the glory and the majesty that's on display here. I mean, it's impossible. I'm inadequate to, to uphold the glory and the beauty of heaven for what it is. And even as we transition into verses 5 through 8 this morning, I'm just simply limited in my ability to rightly portray the wonder of the new heaven and the new earth. The wonder of a new home. Do you remember the one description we have about this new home from last week? It's in verse 1. And the sea was no more. Remember we wrestled with that? Does John, does he hate the ocean? I mean, what's going on there? No, no, in Revelation, everything's symbolic, right? The sea represents evil. Where does the the, the beast come from when Satan, the dragon, is standing on the shore and he calls out his allies? Comes from the, the ocean, comes from the sea. We've seen over and over in the Old Testament, the sea is symbolic of, of evil, 
of opposition to God. And in the new heaven, there is no more sea. Not to say there's not going to be water in heaven, but there's not this opposition. It's now no, no hindrances, no distractions, nothing that causes me in this world to drift away from Christ. There is no more sea, no more evil, no more influence in the world. It's just Christ. He is the distraction. He is what consumes me, just as it should be here. You know, the glory of that picture. Finally, what Paul said, to live as Christ and to die as gain. While here living, I, what I want is Christ more than anything. And death is gain because I have Christ face to face in everything. The glory of this new home where there will be no more distractions. Nothing to cause us to drift away from Christ. It's just us and Christ. And in this new home, we have this relationship that is described as a marriage in verses 2, 3, and 4. The point there is an intimate communion with Him. An intimacy that we pursue here. That we should be pursuing in our day. That we prayed for this morning from Judges chapter 13. That kind of intimacy. We want more of you. More of you. Well there in that perfectly shaped cube. Which is symbolic of the holy of holies. The most holy places. Where God dwells and meets face to face with his people. That's what heaven is. We have that relationship. Of being faithfully wed to him. No distractions. A life devoted to him. Well, that's what verses 1 through 4 paint for us. The work of God in Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His place at the right hand of the Father right now, the, whole, the totality of God's work of redemption through Jesus Christ in chapter 21, it all finds its fulfillment. Here's how it all plays out. Here's what all of this stuff about Christ was all about. Bringing the believer to this eternal home where Christ is all. And as though we're not already staggered by the beauty of that, and let me pause there, only a true believer will be staggered by the beauty of that. For an unbeliever, they hear that and they think, well, I'm not sure I want that kind of heaven. That doesn't entice me. Well, then that, that's a great way to evaluate our own heart. But if we're staggered by the grace of God and the new heaven and the new earth and the great benefit that we have Christ, and he's the one who wipes away every tear. He's the one, because of who he is and what he's done, there's no more death. There's no more suffering. All the glory goes to him. We worship him. We celebrate him. Well, now John takes all of this, and in verses 5 through 8, just continues to heap more and more and more on it based on this one premise that we see there in verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne, Christ Jesus, God in Christ, said, behold, what? Look, pay attention to this. That's what behold means. It's kind of snapping his fingers right here, right here. Pay attention to this. I am making all things new. And this morning, as we turn to verses 5 through 8, oh, I'm hesitant because I, there's just, I'm, there's no way from a human perspective we can fully outline what it means when King Jesus says, pay attention to this, pay attention, your king is speaking, let me, let me help. 
I am making all things new in the new heaven and new earth. It's just a glorious passage. So, I won't be able to fill in all the blanks, but we can certainly follow along the text and just draw our attention to this promise that King Jesus makes in the new heaven and new earth. I'm making all things new. Let's begin with verse 5. The promise itself. All of the comments I'm making this morning revolve around this promise in verse 5. This promise to make all things new. Verse 5. And he, he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. I remember watching, a, there was a TV show on the History Channel a few years back. It may still be on, I just I don't have that channel anymore. But it was a a television program called American Restoration, and it was uh, based out of Las Vegas. And, and the show revolved around this, this guy, Rick, I believe, isn't it? Rick's Restorations. And, and people would bring to him their old, old stuff. And the whole show was just simply him taking this old thing, tearing it down, kind of cleaning it up, I mean, and, and reproducing a restored, clean, looks almost brand new version of what was brought to him previously. Maybe it was an old Coke machine or some old bicycle or some old vehicle and he would literally restore it back to just some original craftsmanship and it was remarkable it was just awesome to see some of you probably seen that show keep that in mind as we look at verse 5 where Jesus declares I'm making all things new that's the idea there it's a restaurant we talked about this last week the verbs that, that John uses here, he's, he's making it clear. There are various verbs that are, one, I'm doing away with everything, and just like I did in Genesis 1, I'm speaking something completely new into existence. That's not what this is. What this is, is I have purged out of this world everything that needs to be gone, and now I'm restoring it to its original glory. It's a restoration. And it's the same imagery that's being picked up here in verse 5. We looked at that last week. It continues to be the case here. I am making all things new. Now, it's a present tense there, but don't mistake that to mean that right now in the church age, right now between the time between his, his ascension and his return, right now he's making all things new. This is a prophetic present, meaning he's, he's carrying us to a time in the future where God says, here I will make all things new. After all these things, now in the midst of the new heaven and new earth, I am making all things new. Now we have a little, uh, an appetizer of that in the gospel. When Paul writes that we are new creations in Christ Jesus, that's kind of an appetizer. God didn't take us and, and just, I mean, he, he took he took us, he took out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, a heart that loves Jesus. And that's a picture of, of the, the creating, uh, uh, making all things new that he will do in, in eternity. There's a picture of that there. But the focus in this text is not even so much on when this is happening. The focus in this text is I. I am the one making all things new. The focus in verse 5, let's not get lost in how wonderful that's going to be. Get lost in the God who is powerful and authoritative. If, you think, if you've seen that show, American if you think what that guy does in restoring old Coke machines is awesome, understand the majesty of Almighty God, the authority, the power of Almighty God who's taking all things 
and making them new. All glory goes to him. The emphasis is on the king, on the throne. The emphasis is upon his power and his authority to take those promises of God that he's going to do this work, that go all throughout the Bible, and to show he will do it. It will be done by his grace, by his authority, by his power. Everything that throughout the Bible he's been promising about the consummation of the kingdom of God. I am making all things new. Redemption here means the restoration of all things. How glorious. I'd love to be able to sit here and say, now here's what this is going to look like. But the reality is no human mind can fathom, can fathom what that means. And I'm not even going to try. I will simply just say, I mean, the, the inspired illumination is a wonderful gift of God, but it can kind of go chaotic. Feel free to explore what this means, but more than anything, behold the God on the throne who is able to do above and beyond anything that we could ever imagine to make all things new for His glory, for our good and our joy in Him. Fall down before this God. He's making all things new. No idea what that means. No idea what that looks like. And I'll be honest, anything we can come up with won't even come close. How glorious this is. And yet difficult to believe, isn't it? Difficult to believe because we look around us and the world around us and, and we see in Revelation 21 verse 5, it's clear as day there, but we look around us and I just don't see how we get from where we are here in the world around us and the things that we see. Even not just out in the unbelieving world, in the church of Jesus Christ, in the Christian, how do we get from here to there? It's a glorious picture of making all things new, but it's hard to believe. Which I believe is why that is immediately followed with these words. And he who was seated on the throne, verse 5, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You see, he anticipates. We as Revelation 2 and 3 churches, right? Those seven churches reflective of every church throughout the church age. The struggles, the difficulties, the dangers, the persecutions. All that the church of Jesus Christ goes through. And the hardships and the afflictions and the sufferings. And we have this promise of, but I will make all things new it can be one of those things, I see it, but I, I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't feel that this is, I just, I just don't see it. And it's hard to cling to it in spite of present circumstances. And therefore, as an accommodation to us, Christ tells John, write down these things. What things? These words I just told you, in spite of everything around you, they are trustworthy and true. You see, these, this promise of the new heaven and the new earth, this, this unrestrained place of the presence of Christ, 
no opposition, just Christ alone. This is not the words of some wise man, some philosopher, some prophet in the Roman Empire. See, this promise comes from God himself. It's something he promised and prophesied going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. What we read in Revelation 21, and we spent a little bit of time talking about this last week, is the fulfillment of Genesis 3. And after Genesis 3, he made that promise to Satan. He continues to reinforce that promise to even make greater claims about the coming Messiah and what he will do and the effect it will have upon the world and upon the soul of a believer. And the reality here of chapter 21 is God did it. The Almighty, the wise, the authoritative God, God who said He's making all things new, He will do it. His words are true. The promise that He made for a new heaven and new earth, we looked at last week, comes from Isaiah chapter 65. Now there were... There were hints of it long before then, even as far back as Genesis 3. But the clearest prophecy is in Isaiah chapter 65. And that's what, what John here is referring to. When he sees the new heaven and new earth, he's, he's using Isaiah's own words. The descent of the heavenly city we read about in verses 1 and 2 is an echo of Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 65. God had promised all along this is what's going to happen. So we get to Revelation 21, and we see these things taking place. And all it is is a simple, oh my goodness, I know my Bible. I have seen in Isaiah. I have seen in Genesis. I have seen in Ezekiel. I have seen in Zechariah where God promised this exact thing. And now it's coming. What's he saying? He is trustworthy and true. All the Old Testament passages are remembered here in Revelation chapter 21, all of them. And God is putting his stamp and saying, I told you. I told you what I was going to do. And now you doubted, you questioned, you struggled to believe. And now I am the faithful and the true worship. Worship me. You see how it's very easy to focus upon the new heaven and new earth to the neglect of the one on the throne. No, the glory of the new heaven on the new earth is Christ and who he is and what he's done and how he's declaring once and for all. Though you doubted it, and most people doubted it, every step of the way, every promise that was made about me is true. It's a reminder to you and I this morning. We have this great promise of God making all things new and God putting his own stamp on it saying, I'm the faithful and true. You can bank on it. Well, let's slide down just a little bit. Christian, are you clinging to the promises of God in, in, in Scripture with absolute confidence in spite of your circumstances? The promises of God that of who he is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. And that the Christian life really is not a life of morality, not a life of religion, not a life of good works. It is Jesus Christ and he is all. 
Are you really clinging to the promise of God that Christ is the all-sufficient answer to our every question? And even when your life circumstances seem to think, that just seems so impractical, clinging to Jesus. I've had conversations with people about this, even after some messages we've preached about this. Jake, I hear what you're saying, but listen, I'm talking about a very real physical problem here, and you're telling me your answer is cling to Jesus? Yes. Yes. That's not my answer. That's God's answer. We're told that the whole reason for the word of God is because the, the man of God is incomplete. There's a void in us. And the word of God, which every page is about Christ, is given to us. Christ is given to us to make us complete. What is it that makes us complete? Christ. He is enough. Are you, just as we're being exhorted to do here with regard to the new heaven and the new earth, to cling to Jesus? Are you clinging to Jesus now in whatever circumstance you're facing? Your financial, your physical, your suffering, the uh, face of death, the, the, the relationship struggle, the job problem. Are you clinging to Jesus or does that sound like pie in the sky, so heavenly minded, no earthly good, which is a dichotomy that is not even biblical. If it sounds like that, then we've not known Christ and his sufficiency. If this morning we see that we're not clinging to Jesus in this way as the answer to all of God's promises, repent. And repentance is person-oriented, return to Jesus as the all-sufficient, all-satisfying, all-glorious answer of God to everything. Pray to God. Help my unbelief. Because I hear what's being said. I, I see it here, but I, right here it's not there. Help my unbelief. So we have the promise of making all things new, and despite the fact that we look around and it just seems like, I mean, I hear it, but I, see, I look around, I don't see how we get from here to there. God says, secondly, I'm the uh, faithful and true, the, the, my words are trustworthy and true, brings us to another thing about this promise. It's in verse 6. And he said to me, who's the he there? The king on the throne, Christ Jesus. He said to me, John says, it is done. What's he talking about here? The final fulfillment of the promise. This promise of making all things new here, he says, it is done this is the final fulfillment of the promise. Wait a second. What is King Jesus saying to Jesus here? Hasn't Jesus already declared somewhere else in redemptive history? It is done. It is finished. Where? On the cross. So, Wait, was it finished there or is it finished here? What's, what's he referring to? Well, when Jesus said it is finished upon the cross, he wasn't lying, but he was focusing upon what was finished upon the cross was his work of atonement. His work of atonement, which is what? The sacrificial, the, 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 the sacrificial giving of his body and blood for the body and blood of another. 
that the wrath of God would be poured upon him instead of the deserving party. And that with the wrath of God being satisfied because it was poured out completely upon Christ upon the cross, this person now, there's, there's no more wrath to be poured out. Those sins are forgiven. It's, they're atoning. Christ atones for the work upon the cross. And very much so, when he died upon the cross, he was completing that work of atonement. But atonement is but one aspect of the eternal gospel. All right? We've heard this, this phrase throughout the book of Revelation, God's eternal gospel, God's work of redemption. The work of redemption is not just the cross. It goes back to eternity past and into eternity future. Right? We read about this in Romans chapter 8. That golden chain of salvation which begins to lay out for us. That the work of redeeming a soul, it requires nothing less than, number one, the calling of God. The work of, of, of the Holy Spirit upon that soul. The shed blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Those whom he justified, he also sanctified. Listen, if there's no sanctification... There was no atonement. And those whom he sanctified, he also what? Glorified. And when does that happen? That's in eternity. So when Jesus said it's finished upon the cross, he's talking about that work of atonement, the cross. But the work of redemption, did you know it's still going on today? Right now. The work of redemption is not complete. We have a high priest, a king who ascended, who's at the Father's right hand right now, and every time we sin and God's wrath is ready to strike down upon us, you have Christ whispering, no, 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 Dad. No, no, my blood. That one's paid for. That one's paid for. How is it, even though we sinned, even this morning, we're not giving him the worship he's worth? How come we're not being sent to hell right now? Yes, the cross of Christ but also because right now Christ Jesus is keeping us, holding us, preserving us until the last time, until eternity, where we will be glorified. And that's what it is finished here. Jesus is referring to when he's talking to done. It is done, he's simply from a, a, present, a prophetic present from the future saying, I have fulfilled, I have brought that soul through everything, eternity past, the work of the cross, the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, giving a new heart that loves Jesus, that sanctifies that heart, that grows that heart so that the affections love Jesus more and more so that we bring to that place that point of death and we're brought into eternity and given a glorified, I have done it all. And that's the it is finished that he's talking about here. He's talking about the fullness of the work of redemption from eternity past into eternity uh, uh, future. What a glorious truth. Anybody ever struggle with assurance of your salvation? You're lying to me if you say no. Or you're an unbeliever. <laughs> we all do. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. His person. His work on the cross. Right now, his ongoing intercessory ministry at the right hand of God the Father keeping us. We sing a song sometimes called He Will Hold Me Fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He, why is he having to hold? I thought the cross took care of everything. It took care of atonement. And I'm not yet perfectly conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ in glory. And I continue to battle. 
And though I'm growing, becoming more and more conformed to Jesus, when I drift away, he's the one who holds me fast. He's the one who's preserving and protecting me. Do you see the glory of this passage? The glory of that statement, it is done. It is the stamp of assurance to the true believer that says, the guarantee of salvation will find ultimate fulfillment. When Christ from this future place says to John, it is finished, he's saying, all my true believers, I have accomplished everything necessary to bring them to myself. What a glorious picture. But again, we're weak. Again, we can hear those things and on a Sunday morning, amen, yes. No. But it's a constant battle. A constant battle to believe and live upon these promises. And so in addition to the fulfillment of this promise that we read about in verse 6, he follows that up with something else to reinforce our faith. Revelation 21, keep reading in verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. And then he secures that. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. He's simply declaring here the truthfulness of his promise, the truthfulness of his finished work on behalf of his true believers is anchored in him. Not anything the believer does or doesn't do. It's in Him as the sovereign Lord over all, even the salvation of an unbeliever. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You probably have some awareness. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And what we have here by calling Himself, I am the Alpha, the beginning, and the Omega, the last name. He's using a literary device. It's called a merism, where you take two opposite extreme things as representative of the whole of everything. Now, we do this in our own language, and maybe this will be helpful. Have you ever said to somebody, I lost something, and I searched high and low? You ever said that before? Now, we look high. Does that mean you didn't look in the middle? Did you mean everything from 10 feet up and down on the ground? But anything in this area, I didn't look at. Of course not. You're using a merism. Have you ever invited a group to something and said, well, you're every, I invite young and old. Does that mean 12 years old and under? And I'm hesitant to put a number on old. Let's go 90 and over. But anyone in that middle, you're not invited? No. You're using those two extremes to say, I mean, everybody's invited. And this is a title, Alpha and Omega, that is used of God in the book of Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. And besides me, there is no God. And now that very imagery where God says, I am sovereign over all things. I'm the first and the last and Everything in between. I'm the alpha, I'm the beta, I'm the gamma, I'm the delta, I'm the epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, I'm all of them. 
the beginning, the end, and everything. I am sovereign. It's all mine. All belongs to me. All of creation is mine. Every cloud in the sky, it's mine. Every planet, it's mine. I made it. I control it. I sustain it. Every life that breathes, it's mine. And God, Christ from his throne, declares himself. And oh, by the way, believer, I'm sovereign over your salvation. You belong to me. By grace, you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it from before the foundation of the world. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. You kind of came into the picture somewhere in the middle. And as I'm sovereign over, you belong to me. And he's declaring here, he's declaring here that everything that occurs in the, every life in between the Alpha and the Omega, he's sovereign over. And so now, when that one says, I am making all things new, and then that one says, I am the trustworthy and faithful, and, and when that one comes and, and he says, it is done, I have done everything necessary, now all of a sudden, I got something I can hold on to. Now all of a sudden, and it's not that I'm, I feel good about this now, now it's holy cow who am i in light of who you are and what am i that you would even think of me what am i that you would love me with this kind of a love what well, that you would sustain me that you would save me that you would give your own son jesus who am i that right now at the right hand of the father jesus of nazareth would be holding and keeping me who am i that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I would be conformed into the likeness of Christ in glory. All glory goes to Him. One commentator writes this, God through Christ is fully in control of every situation and every salvation. So that the words spoken here by Christ, it is finished, are a source of comfort for believers who endure hardship and persecution for the sake of the gospel. But make no mistake, from beginning to end, it is God is the sovereign ruler in the universe who has made and upholds everything by his power. He's the Lord of the future that points beyond the final judgment to a new creation. Do you see? The hope is in him. The hope is in him clinging to him. All other ground is sinking sand. Well, let me ask you this morning, there's still just a little bit more ground to cover. We've seen here this morning the promise of Christ to make all things new. He's put a stamp on it. I am the faithful and true. I have done everything that is necessary to accomplish it. Because I am the Alpha and the Omega. Holy cow, what do you, who is this Christ? Who is this one? So glorious and sovereign and all-powerful and all-sufficient and 
Let's just use what, what Paul, he's all. And then you fill in the blank of what all that entails. He is all. That's who this king is on the throne who's speaking to John. Let me ask you this morning. Does your heart thirst for that king? And Please don't be quick to answer that. Because in a room like this, the most obvious thing, well, everybody, you kind of have to say yes. But don't do that. Take time. Are you honestly thirsty for this king who is the trustworthy and true, who is the sovereign one, who is the alpha and the omega, who is the all-glorious one, who in the new heaven and new earth, there's no more sea, no more. He is the great distraction. Do you truly long for him in this way? Do you desire to know this one, to walk with this one, to trust and obey this one, to live upon his promises now? Do you thirst for him? And it's a good time to just pause and ask yourself some questions, as I, I ask myself. How is it between your heart and Christ this morning? So let me give you some very specific questions to ask. How is your love for Jesus when you woke up this morning? How's your love for Jesus? As you think back to the past week, how much time have you honestly spent in communion with this king, King Jesus? And let me be very clear about communion with King Jesus. That comes one way, through this book. Not through a Bible devotional, uh, not through a blog post. Not, that's somebody else's communion with Christ. You, your com how much time have you spent in this book, which every page is about Christ, getting to know him? How has your fellowship with this Christ been in prayer? I'm not suggesting that you're looking for a certain number of minutes, that if you, this minutes, it's good. This, no, I'm talking, I mean, in whatever time that was spent, an earnest, out of the neediness of my soul, Christ is all. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. Christ is the trustworthy and true. Christ is the Word of God. Christ is all. Therefore, I, I, He's the one thing I must have this day. How is that in your heart this week? How diligent have you been in your repentance toward Christ? Meaning we're all imperfect. As we're spending time communion with Christ in his word, the promise of the work of atonement is that we are being saved to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. What does that mean? We're becoming more like him. And as we get better acquainted with this Jesus, the natural thing is it exposes areas in my life, in my thinking, in my speaking, in what I value in my heart that's not like Jesus. And that's not okay. As a true believer, I must repent. I must turn away and return to Jesus. I need to, to love him and to reflect him in my life. So honestly, how much time do you, have you valued Jesus so much that that kind of repentance has been important to you? Can you think of a time when in your examination of Christ through his word, your heart just sang the glories of Christ? As this morning was approaching, Sunday morning, were you anticipating with excitement the joy of gathering together to, 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 to focus and to pursue the excellencies of Christ, his nearness, to gather together, to feast upon Christ in prayer, to feast upon Christ in praise and the proclamation of his word? Or was there a general sense of, eh, Sunday, I guess I should go. I didn't go last week, I, I probably better go this week. 
all of these type questions, the overall, do you really thirst for Jesus? Why am I asking this question? Verse 6. If you can look at those questions and answer, my soul thirsts for Jesus, there's good news. Verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty... I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Thirsty. He's using a physical need there to talk about who he is and how he fills that void. In our day, we have water available everywhere. So it doesn't quite communicate. In this day, back in the original audience, they depended upon water for their very life. It was not easily accessible. They had to go get it. Uh, there was a real fear. Maybe water might not be available when they needed it. That was a real possibility. And John Christ is wooing people to say, just as you have that fear and that need and that desire and that thirst for water, I need more, I need more, I need more. To those who thirst for me, I'm all sufficient. You'll never thirst again. Isn't that what Jesus said to the woman at the well in Samaria? This is the same promise that God has made elsewhere. Isaiah chapter 55, God says, come everyone who thirsts. He's not talking about physical thirst. Come everyone, come to the water. He who has no money, come, eat, buy. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently. What do you say? Listen, I'm not talking about bread and water. Listen diligently. Eat what is good. I'm not talking about food. I'm talking about me. Delight yourself in rich food. I'm not talking about food. I'm talking about me. And Jesus hears. We've seen it elsewhere in Jesus' public ministry. But the point here is, to the soul that realizes its need and sees Christ for who he's revealed himself to be, not just in this passage, all throughout, and realizes, like with the true believers we see in Scripture, I must have this one. I'm thirsty for him. Jesus has come. You'll never thirst again. I'm not telling you won't struggle. I'm not saying this life won't be hard. I'm telling you in me, you will have everything that you need, which goes back to, does that sound so spiritually minded? It's no practically good, no earthly good. Well, then we haven't understood the value and the wonder and the sufficiency of Christ. I asked you, do you thirst for Christ? In the last week, is there evidence of this thirst for Christ? What I want you to see, and we're about to get there to drive that point home, is this. Those types of questions are not unimportant. Those type of questions are not just, well, it's Sunday morning. I guess the preacher's expected to ask me kind of how my spiritual life is. No, no, no. Hang tight. If you don't thirst like this, you die. You die. You go to hell. Hang with me. He makes a promise to the thirsty. Verse 7, a promise to the thirsty. He kind of defines who true believers are, who the thirsty are. He kind of puts handles on it. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. Christ's people 
are overcomers. They're conquerors. And we've got to, that's exactly what he was teaching the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. You've drifted away from me. There's evil influences. There's false teachers. You've drifted away from Christ. Conquering means conquering those enemies and drifting back to Christ, put, put, making him your all. That's what it is to conquer, to conquer anything that's pulling you away from Jesus of Nazareth. And here Jesus is, is pulling upon that imagery there that he commanded in, in Gen, uh, Revelation 2 and 3. He said, to those who did what I said, who repented and conquered and thirsted for me, who did not compromise their faith despite the persecution, who consistently relied upon me for sustaining them, even when the Roman Empire was trying to take everything away from them before being believers. The true believer of Christ follows Christ all their life. They thirst for him all their life. He is all. For the true believer, the life of faith is not rejoicing in getting started. It's in finishing well completing it, being faithful to Jesus to the very end. The promises for the conquerors and overcomers means there is no reward for starting well. There is no reward for, well, 40 years ago, you were really serious about Jesus, but here in these last 5, 10, 15 years or 5, 10, 15 minutes, your heart is cold towards the things of Christ. The prize is for those who conquer, who overcome, not who start well and then begin to drift away the promise of making all things new stamped by the faithful and the true the true and trustworthy completed by the it is finished work of Jesus of Nazareth who is the alpha and the omega everything we talked about that we said my goodness what a king what now we come to understand that promise is only for those who thirst for Christ. Who overcome and conquer all the distractions by clinging to Christ to the very end. There's a promise, time's not going to allow us to go into it, of a heritage that's mentioned there in verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, he will be my son. You've got to hear the echo there. What, what, what is it that God has promised to Israel? You will be my people, I will be your God. And he's picked out ambassadors all throughout the Old Testament. Abraham, uh, uh, David. We saw Samson this morning. But ultimately, it's that promise of I will be your God, you will be my people, you will be my sons, found its fulfillment in Christ. Christ was the ultimate ambassador. God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And to all who believe in him, Paul says in Romans 8, I give the right to become children of God. Who gets the right to become children of God? Those who believe in him. And, and time will not, it's a whole other sermon series, but we've, we've talked about it enough. Believing in Jesus is not a mere prayer in a moment. It is a clinging to Jesus, a thirsting for him every day of your life. So you've got this promise to those who conquer, this heritage, this promise of adoption, you will be my people, my children, I will be your father forever and ever and ever in the new heaven and new earth. But we close with this. 
There's also another piece of this promise to the unbeliever. Verse 8. And let me frame it this way. This is the promise of God to those who do not thirst for Christ. This is the promise of God for those who do not overcome all the temptations to drift away from Christ and to cling to Him. For all those who are not thirsty and do not overcome, there is, verse 8, a final word given. All the glories of everything we've seen in verses 1 through 7. Now, if you fall in the category of verse 8, you don't benefit. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So what John is doing here very quickly, he's grouping all of humanity into two groups, two classes. There are the overcomers, the thirsty ones, the ones who have seen their need for Christ and seen he's all and they are pursuing him with reckless abandon because there's nowhere else to turn. Nothing else can satisfy. And then you've got another group who don't. The thirsty group for Christ, they feel their need for him. They know who he is. They see what he's done upon the cross. They've trusted him by grace through the work of the Holy Spirit and the new birth. They've cast themselves upon him for mercy. They walk with him daily. That He is their strength. He is their love. He is their all. And this verse 8 group is not. It's an amazing list we see here in verse 8. And understand, these are spiritual realities. Verse 8, the cowardly. He's talking about spiritually cowards. The faithless, the unbeliever, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, immoral sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, spiritual liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Who are these verse 8 people? They don't thirst for Christ. They don't treasure Christ. They live for themselves. And in some of these instances, maybe Christ is in the picture, but he's not all. And the inheritance of the person who they themselves are on the throne, the inheritance is not adoption into the kingdom of God as children. It is what? Hell. What are these things? Liars. I'm just the last one there. Spiritual liars. Yes, he's talking about lying. But in the context here, here's what John's talking about. People who continue to lie to themselves about their relationship with Jesus. Let me say that again. The liars he's talking about here are those who continue to lie to themselves and others about their relationship with Jesus, about their thirst for him. Goes back to some of the questions we began with a moment. How are you doing in your relationship with Christ? I, again, I said, don't answer that quickly. Because that's the common thing. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. That's, that's how we answer everything. It's fine. Are you a Christian? Of course I am. Of course I am. Are you a Christian according to what the Bible says a true believer is love for Jesus? Cowards. He's talking about spiritual cowards. Christ calls you to repent. Repentance is person to turn from all other things to himself. Christ calls you to repent, to turn to him as king. 
but you always say, but. Or you always say, well, I mean, I've, I'm moving in that direction. I've kind of done this. I prayed a prayer, but. I mean, all this, this thirsting for Christ alone and he is all, uh, that's spiritual cowardice. You're a coward. You won't go to him for everything. The faithless, the unbelievers that he talks about there. You know, I hear what they're saying on a Sunday morning. I hear we sing the songs. We talk about the Alpha and the Omega, the true and the faithful. The... I just don't see it. I don't see Christ as being what he portrays it to be or what Scripture portrays it to be. And the warning of verse 8, well, you will go to hell disbelieving. This is a powerful list we see in verse 8. And the danger is for us to look at this list and think, well, I, I can think of dozens of unbelievers that fit into these categories in verse 8. Revelation was written to the churches, to those very people who gather just as we've done on this Sunday morning and profess and sing their affections for Jesus. Christ is all. And yet Christ, what do we see in chapter 2 and 3? Walking in their midst, exposing sins. Some of you are lying, Jesus says. Some of you are cowards. Some of you are not believing what you, your words are saying. You're saying the right things with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Make no mistake about it. That person has no place in the new heaven and the new earth. Beloved, Revelation 21 is intended to encourage, comfort, to bring hope, to bring glory to King Jesus. King Jesus wins. Everything that we're told in Genesis chapter 3 and the, subsequently that Christ would be and what he would accomplish, Revelation 21 says he's done it. It will be done. All glory to Christ. The future for God's people is a rich and a bright one. I'm not talking material, I'm talking Christ. To live as Christ, to die is gain. I want Christ. But just as equally glorious as that is, it's equally horrifying for the person who's trying to play games with Jesus. Who's trying to balance being religious and moral with continuing to live a life that Christ is not all. And the sobering warning right here if you do not rely and live upon and thirst for Christ in this way, you will inherit, your heritage will be eternal death. Why? Why this morning would anyone sit here and listen and take honest evaluation of their heart? And if they see an area where they've drifted, why would you not repent? Well, it's not in our power to do so. We cry out to the Father. We cry out, God, send your spirit to do. Something's wrong. So I've drifted. I didn't even feel it. And this morning, the spirit is, is showing some things. Continue the work. Give me the grace to repent, to return to Jesus this day. Or if you can look at your heart and say, listen, I'm not perfect, but Christ is all to me. And that's not just speaking it, but I can look at my devotion to Him, my time in the Word, that I'm truly seeking Him, my communion with Him in prayer, my, my desire this morning to come to church, not, not because of Jake, not because of but because of Christ. I just want, I want Christ. Well, then rejoice in Him. Rejoice in the Alpha and the Omega. Cling to Him. Pray for grace. He who has began this good work would see it through to completion to the very end.
this message is for everyone in this room, myself included, then the question becomes, but where are we? What does this text expose about us? Now may the Lord be kind and gracious to give us the grace we need to respond appropriately.